Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and last week you heard about the disappearance of Katrina Smith. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go ahead and catch up before this episode, because the disappearance of Katrina Smith is about to turn into the murder of Katrina Smith. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In last week's episode, we went over the last time Katrina was seen alive, which, according to her husband Todd, whom she was separated from, was at his house on October 22, 2009 at 9 p.m., which is when he says she left to run on a mystery errand but never came back from. We talked about where her car was found abandoned and where her phone, purse, wallet, and some possibly bloody paper towels were found, and ultimately where her body was recovered three weeks later on November 9th severely decomposed and covered in mud in the Rock River. And while her body had been recovered and positively identified, there were so many questions that still needed to be answered. Like, how did she get into the river? How long had she been there? And what was her cause of death? And slowly but surely, all of those details came to light. The press was eerily quiet in the two days following the recovery of Katrina's body, but on November 11th, her family, including Todd, spoke exclusively with WIFR and told them that while they're devastated, their biggest fear was never finding her, so they've gotten some small sense of relief. But the biggest question on everyone's mind is about Katrina's cause of death, and her family tells the outlet that the police aren't releasing it just yet because they feel like doing so might hinder the investigation. If Katrina had simply run away and fallen into the river, or if she had committed suicide, releasing her cause of death wouldn't be a hindrance to any investigation. Even though we can't know her cause of death at this point, the fact that they're keeping it close to the vest means that even though her body was severely decomposed from being exposed to the water and elements for so long, a cause of death was still apparent. And if there's an investigation to hinder, it doesn't sound like they're thinking Katrina just walked off, committed suicide, or was in any control of however she wound up in that river. All signs are pointing to this being a homicide investigation, which I think most people suspected from the beginning. Two days after her family's interview, the police are done keeping secrets and deem Katrina's disappearance a homicide. But in an interesting twist, they say that they'd been treating her disappearance as a homicide investigation since day one. Her cause of death? Multiple blunt force trauma to the head and torso. Let's pick that apart for a second. Blunt force trauma is up close and personal. Multiple blunt force trauma to the head and torso has a rage factor. Her cause of death points to the idea that whoever did this had a personal connection to her and that her murder was emotionally motivated. Blunt force trauma can be bloody, but when it's only one wound, the blood can be minimal. However, when you have multiple blunt force injuries to the body, the amount of blood you'd expect to find increases with every blow. Wherever Katrina was killed should contain massive amounts of blood or evidence of a cleanup. Those bloody paper towels they found near her car 
are starting to look more and more likely that they are going to be related to Katrina's murder. And that eight plus hour search warrant on Todd's house is looking more and more suspect. Because of the state of Katrina's remains when they were found, the medical examiner couldn't definitively say how long she'd been dead before she was put into the river, but police say that they have every reason to believe that she had been in the river since the night she went missing. With her cause of death revealed and tensions rising within the community, locals begin talking more freely about what they'd heard and seen since Katrina disappeared, and it comes out that people running, jogging, and walking their dogs actually passed her abandoned car multiple times throughout the day she was reported missing. They remembered seeing her car parked there as early as 7.30 a.m. that morning, which narrows down the time frame in which the murder could have taken place. Whatever happened to her happened after she was seen shopping on CCTV footage between 7 and 8 p.m. the night before and 7 a.m. before she was scheduled for her interview. Aside from the news reports of when people first noticed her car, people also noticed that a door to enter Todd's garage has been replaced. According to a neighbor, the police busted down the door while Todd was at the police station reporting Katrina missing and being questioned. That's the home that Todd lived in when he reported her missing, and he was the one reporting it. And even still, the police went to that house while he was still at the police station to look for Katrina. It sounds like police weren't quite buying his story. On November 16th, just hours before Katrina's funeral visitation, WIFR reports that police are out in Byron, where her body was found, looking for more evidence there. And people start to wonder if that is where the crime scene began. Instead of her body being placed into the river near the park and then making its way south into Byron, is it possible that she was actually dumped into the river in Byron and her killer then drove her car and parked it by the park, which would have been within walking distance of Todd's house? Considering the multiple dams in the Rock River between the two scenes, it seems more and more likely that the two scenes were actually being searched backwards. Regardless, the searches were phenomenally executed by both the community and law enforcement and were a gold mine of evidence. That evening, Katrina's visitation is held and hundreds in the community attend. My state line reports that many of those in attendance hadn't even met her, but say that they all wish they had. That through her disappearance, when everyone came together to search for her, it was clear what an incredible impact she had had on the lives of everyone around her. People shared their favorite memories of her and talked about how sweet and girly she was, how tidy she kept things, and how she loved everyone in her life with her whole heart. And while it was beautiful and an incredible celebration of her life, no one wanted to be there because being there meant that she wasn't. And that hit them hard. It was more real than ever that Katrina wasn't coming back. Her funeral was the following day, and her brother and stepdaughters were front and center talking about their second mother and the light that she brought into their life every single day that she was in it. And I think it's really powerful to note that even with all the signs and speculations pointing to their father being very, very deeply involved in whatever happened to Katrina, they never chose a side. They didn't feel like they needed to shy away and stand solely behind their father, who had been noticeably quiet since his wife's body was found. Instead, they continued to fully and openly express their love for Katrina and how much they were going to miss her presence in their lives. Her entire funeral was actually filmed, so I'll post a link to it in her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. It was a beautiful tribute. 
A few days pass with no interviews, no statements from police, nothing. And everyone's wondering how no arrests have been made yet. But on the afternoon of November 21st, 2012, there's word. A press conference is scheduled for 345, and it's clear that something big is about to happen. The minutes until 345 almost felt longer than the weeks leading up to it, but 345 comes and it's what many expected to hear since the day Katrina was reported missing. An hour earlier at 1245 that afternoon, Katrina's husband, Todd Smith, was pulled over while a passenger in a car taken into police custody and charged with two counts of murder with the intent to kill or injure, two other counts of murder, one count of attempting to conceal a homicidal death and held on a $4 million bond. It would cost him $400,000 to get out of jail. Two of his counts of murder in the state of Illinois indicate that there were elements of brutal and heinous behavior in the commission of killing Katrina, which is clear seeing as she was beaten to death, but hearing those words makes it that much more real. Those legal aspects of the charge means that if found guilty, Todd could face up to life in prison. After Todd's arrest, little bits of information start trickling out, and on Rockford News reports that Katrina was, in fact, at Todd's house the night he claims to have last seen her. She had gone there to get some laundry done because the washing machine at the condo wasn't working. Once she started the load, she left to go to the store, clearly not trying to spend any unnecessary time with Todd while using her washing machine. Todd's house was actually in Katrina's name and Katrina's name only, but because Todd was the one living there and to make it more clear which residents we're talking about throughout the episode, we'll continue to refer to it as Todd's house. Katrina came back from the store to finish her laundry, and no one really knows the timeline of events after that and leading up to her murder. However, initial reports seem to indicate that police believe she was killed inside Todd's house and that her body was then transported in the trunk of her own car before being thrown into the Rock River. On Saturday, November 24, 2012, Todd had his first day in court. He showed up in a yellow jumpsuit with his hands shackled to his waist. He didn't enter a plea and was appointed a public defender. WIFR reports that his family was trying to hire him as own defense attorney at the time, but that they weren't sure if they could afford to. He's back in court again on December 14th, where the prosecution changes things up a bit. With time to process all the evidence, they now believe that he forced Katrina into the trunk, drove her to the river, and while she struggled to get out of the trunk, he beat her to death with a metal baseball bat before throwing her into the river. And it's at this hearing, with the death penalty having been repealed in Illinois a year prior to Katrina's murder, it's no shock that Todd entered a not guilty plea, which meant this was going to go to trial. On January 9th, 2013, Todd had a status hearing, which is a hearing where all sides get together to talk about where each of them stand as far as the case goes and when it may be ready for trial. I don't think anyone could have anticipated just how far out that would be. While there, Todd asked that the police return some of his personal belongings taken in the search of his house. Who fucking knows what he could possibly want or what he would ever do with it since he's sitting his whole ass in jail and can't afford to go anywhere, but criminals aren't known for making any logical sense. 
The judge said he'd give him an answer at his next status hearing, which happened on the 22nd. Dude wanted the keys to his Jeep, which was in storage. And, you know, since you can't drive in jail, the judge allowed for it. Another hearing was set for early February, but it was continued by Todd and his defense, and a bond hearing was scheduled for March 22nd. The bond hearing comes and goes, and naturally his bond stays put at $4 million. Another court date was scheduled and continued in mid-April. There was a small uneventful hearing in June and another continued status hearing on July 3rd, and he was expected in court again on July 29th of 2013. Investigations can be so fast-paced, but when it comes time for court, there is so much waiting and oftentimes disappointment when the date you've been counting down the days until finally gets here and it's continued. But it should be noted that Katrina's family handled the pace of this case like a champ. To honor Katrina's life and make sure that she wasn't forgotten in the midst of all of this talk about Todd, they held a balloon lunch in her honor at Shoemaker Park on July 16th while they waited for the next update. I'd love to say that some grand movement came in July, but that would be a lie. Fast forward to November, more than a year after Katrina was killed, Todd's defense team filed to get some of the evidence taken from his house suppressed. A computer, cell phone, and hiking boots, which now sounds like an itemized list of all the things that are going to make him look guilty as fuck. According to RR Star, Todd claims that these items were seized during search warrants that he signed and even consented to, but that he didn't read the fine print and was stressed out when he did it. One, it's a fucking search warrant. They're pretty self-explanatory. And two, I'm pretty sure it's stressful knowing the police are searching your house after you killed your wife, reported her missing, went out searching for her with everyone else, and even joined her family at a news interview after her body was found. No one feels sorry for you, and neither did the judge. He denied the motion to suppress, and everything found in those search warrants is going to be aired out in court whenever that might be. I shit you not that this case all but stalls until April of 2015. 15! And it's at this hearing that the defense requested police reports about a juvenile that was caught stalking Todd and Katrina's neighbor, get this, two years before she was killed. You know your defense is backed into a corner when they're trying to look into a dude who stalked some people who lived near you two years ago. What did he do? Take a break? Change his stalking interests to the woman who lived in the house down the street and escalate to murder? Fast forward another long year, and between January, February, March, and April of 2016, five evidentiary hearings are held, and as always, when it comes to this case, R.R. Star came through. At this evidentiary hearing, they showed Katrina's autopsy photos, and they were horrific. She had bruising all over her body, her arms, legs, and her side. I said side specifically because that was the wording they used, and I think it's important to point out because we were told she was likely killed while she was in the trunk of a car, where it's more than possible she was laying on her side. Along with the bruising all over her body, she also had seven deep gashes to her head, which the medical examiner believes was caused by being struck with an object multiple times. Knowing now just how many bruises and gashes she sustained, it's clear that her attack took time and intense rage. She was beaten over and over and over again. 
A forensic pathologist reiterated that her cause of death was blunt force trauma, but added that her mechanism of death may have been asphyxiation, meaning that she died because of the injuries sustained by the blunt force trauma. River or not, she would have died from them, but they think it's possible she may have still been alive when she was thrown into the river and drowned as a result. As hard as it is to say this, it's important to say it. Katrina Smith died a slow and mortifyingly painful death. They continue to present evidence and talk about blood found at Todd's home. And it wasn't found on the floor or the walls. They found Katrina's blood on a baseball bat found in his garage. If Todd did, in fact, murder his wife, that means that he got rid of her purse, wallet, and cell phone, but kept the baseball bat he used to kill her with. Think about the thought process you'd have to go through and the state of mind that you'd have to be in to beat your wife to death with a baseball bat and then decide to bring that bat back home knowing that it would always be there and you would always see it in passing. The defense has an expert testify to the fact that while they found Katrina's blood in the trunk and on that baseball bat in Todd's garage, none of Todd's DNA was found in or on either. I suppose their argument was that if it's not there, there's reasonable doubt that he wasn't responsible for her murder. But if no one else's DNA is there, what's the argument then? That no one did it? We always talk about DNA evidence, fingerprints, CCTV footage, etc. But circumstantial evidence can be just as important. Just because someone's DNA or fingerprints aren't here or there doesn't mean that they couldn't have done it. They could have worn gloves. They could have cleaned up the blood. And frankly, there's a plenty good chance that in the course of beating Katrina to death with a bat, her killer never got injured enough to bleed himself. It's hard to fight back when your entire body, including your head, is being beaten with a bat while confined to the back of a trunk. Guy, the other man, actually testifies at one of these hearings as well. His trailer and even his mom's house were searched by the police and he willingly provided his fingerprints. Katrina's new boyfriend fully cooperated with police as soon as he was made aware she was missing. He told the court that him and Katrina had spent the previous weekend together at the condo she'd been staying at in Roscoe. One of the last text messages Katrina ever sent was to him, saying that she was going to watch Monday Night Football and do some laundry. Katrina woke up that morning like it was a normal day. She went to work, got ready for her interview the next day, and planned on watching some football and getting some laundry done, having no idea that someone else had much more sinister plans for her. A sales representative at a local cell phone store also testified, telling the courts that Katrina had visited her store three times in the month she was killed. During one of those trips, the sales rep said that Katrina seemed nervous and told her she was thinking about getting a new phone so her husband couldn't see her text or who she was talking to. On her third visit to the phone store, she asked the sales rep if there was some way her husband might be using her phone to track her movements. This would have been around the same time the masked man distributed those cat and guy flyers at her work. So did Katrina suspect all along that it was Todd? Because it was. 
During a forensic dump of Todd's computer, detectives found a file containing specific phrases used in that very personal flyer. The staff at that store said that she seemed afraid, that her hands were shaking, and it looked like she was trying not to cry. They actually told her that she needed to get a protective order against Todd because they genuinely felt like she was being stalked, but the defense's argument is that Katrina never followed through with getting this new phone. I suppose that's supposed to negate the clear fear and concern she clearly had for her privacy and safety. And that argument really shit the bed when a detective testified to the forensic analysis done on Todd's computer. This detective found a file for a super track stick, a GPS monitoring device you can mount on anything you want to track. That file on Todd's computer tracked Katrina's movements all the way back to October 5th of 2012, up until the day she was killed, meaning it also tracked the path of her killer and it was all found on her husband's laptop. Police were never able to find the physical GPS device, but they found its mount still attached to Katrina's car when it was found and a clip for the device in Todd's desk. Her killer likely assumed if they couldn't find the device itself and they deleted all the information it tracked from the computer that no one would know there had ever been one. Her killer would be wrong. And Todd is screwed because if the GPS tracking wasn't bad enough, remember how her cell phone was thrown into the grass near that elementary school? A house nearby had security cameras, and it caught a small statured man walking by in the direction of Todd's house within the same time frame that the GPS tracker put her car there. Todd is only 5'6 and weighs only 115 pounds, and I'd say he fits the description of small statured. His defense tried their damnedest face with all this evidence and argued that anyone could have had access to his laptop. Sure, Anyone could have tracked his wife's movements starting the month she was killed, then somehow gained access to his computer and put all of the GPS reporting data onto it under a file named KS10412. Her initials and the exact date Guy and Katrina first met up outside of work, then gained access to his laptop again three days after Katrina was killed and deleted said file and placed the clip for that GPS in his desk, all without Todd ever noticing it. Katrina's stepdad took the stand and testified that Todd was actually the one who told him that they were having problems in their marriage. It happened only a few weeks prior to her murder, and they were having problems because Katrina had already met with a divorce attorney. Her stepdad also testified that within the week Katrina was killed, she texted him asking how to get an Illinois firearms card and whether or not she could practice at a gun range without one. The detectives that interviewed Todd on the day he reported her missing testified saying that he was nervous and sweating when they asked him for consent to search his home, computer, and phone, and that he even asked them what exactly they were going to be searching for in each. They said he paced, held his head, and just repeated, oh my god, oh my god. And in what's almost more shocking than anything, Todd denied to police any knowledge that there may have been any potential affair going on or any marital problems whatsoever. 
The defense's argument to the judge was that the statements made by Guy, the cell phone sales reps, her stepfather, Todd, and even Katrina herself should be admissible at trial. And in mid-April, that's exactly what the judge did. This judge was blown away at the amount of evidence the prosecution had against Todd and said that he will allow every single bit of it to be used against him at trial. He even went as far as to say that he believes Todd's guilty. R.R. Starr quotes the judge as saying, The court believes when you look at the totality of the evidence, there is enough in the court's opinion, circumstantial evidence, to find the state met its burden and the defendant is responsible for the homicide of Katrina Smith and did so to prevent her from testifying in a divorce proceeding. I have never, in all the cases I've researched, seen a judge make a statement like this. But only a jury can decide, and it took almost another full year for Todd's trial to begin. In January of 2017, more than four years after Katrina was murdered, opening statements began and WIFR covered every single day of the trial. I'll post some really great links of their coverage and Katrina's highlight at the top of my Instagram. Katrina's boss testified that Katrina had actually confided in her that Todd was controlling and that she wanted a divorce. Co-workers also testified that Katrina told them that she was worried Todd was somehow tracking her every move. The same thing she told the staff at the cell phone store. Her stepfather talked again about her interest in getting a firearms card and talked about the times Todd helped search for Katrina. He said Todd didn't seem enthusiastic about it at all and wasn't thorough on the rare occasions that he actually did participate. Another witness testified to his behavior during the searches and remembered him looking through his phone instead of actively searching for his missing wife. She said he seemed more annoyed that he had grass on him than anything and that he was constantly brushing himself off. Two of Todd's clients from his business reported that he seemed really tired and out of it the day he reported Katrina missing. When the clients asked him if everything was okay, he just told them that his puppy had kept him up the night before. Todd didn't tell them that he was worried that he couldn't get in touch with his wife or because she hadn't shown up for work or an interview that morning. No, he told them that his puppy kept him up. We also find out during the trial that Todd was the sole beneficiary of Katrina's $300,000 life insurance policy. And remember, he was facing major money fraud charges. One of the detectives on her case took the stand and testified that one day after reporting his wife missing, Todd called him freaking out, saying that an investigator had told her family that the police had found blood in Katrina's car. The problem here was that at the time of this call, her car hadn't been processed yet. When the detective told him that they didn't know anything about the car yet, Todd quickly changed his tune and said that he must have heard about it through the grapevine or through a blog. The detective who did speak to Katrina's family that day confirmed that he definitely didn't tell them about evidence they didn't even have yet. This is an example of why police choose to keep some details of investigations close to the vest. In this case, it wasn't a decision the police made because they hadn't even processed the car yet, but they do it to allow the guilty party to slip up and give details that no one else would know. Todd had a series of verbal slip-ups throughout the investigation, and this detective wasn't the only person to witness it. He actually called one of her friends after she went missing, and when she asked about the last time he saw Katrina, he told her that she had left that night to go check on her friend's condo, not that she was going to run an errand. Katrina lived 
at that condo and was only at Todd's house because she had to be because the washing machine at the condo was broken. There was no checking on the condo. We knew Katrina's blood had been found in the trunk of her car, a lot of it, but that wasn't the only place it was found. The crime scene investigator who processed her car testified that to the naked eye, it looked clean, even the trunk. But when they ran further tests, they also found Katrina's blood on the steering wheel, the stick shift, and the driver's seat. So either Katrina drove her own car after being beaten so brutally that her injuries would have killed her, or the person who killed her got back into her car and drove it with her blood all over them. Aside from the blood found in her car, they also found a note written by Todd. He told her that he was sorry about how unhappy she's been and tells her that she's incredible. He says he's worried that her being unhappy is going to cause her to look for someone else who will take advantage of her situation and that she'll fall for them. But he adds that while he's afraid of that, he trusts her and knows that her integrity will keep her from cheating. Again, let's remember that this is a man who told the police that there were no problems in their marriage. Katrina's phone records are finally revealed during Todd's trial, and they are chilling. She'd been texting with Guy throughout the night she was killed. We know Guy has his own shady history with women, but when it comes to Katrina, he has an airtight alibi for the night she was killed. He was texting her from work, where he was from 4 p.m. that night until 5.30 a.m. the next morning, which is a really long day. They texted back and forth about her wanting that divorce from Todd, but eventually she stopped responding. He sent her a three-part message starting at around 8.30 p.m., but only two of them were ever opened, and the second got a delayed response, which Guy said was unusual for her. At 11.24 that night, Todd texted her, Sweet dreams, I love you. That text was never opened either. The prosecution believes that Todd sent this text to her after making her get into her own trunk, beating her with a baseball bat, and throwing her into a river to die. This was a sweet dreams text from a man who claims that his wife never returned home from running an errand, but he wasn't worried about where she was two and a half hours after he claims she left for it. Her phone is silent for a while before Todd calls her the next day a little before noon. She'd been missing for almost 15 hours at this point. Obviously, she didn't answer, so Todd left a message. He said, I have a question for you regarding your appointment, so give me a call when you can. I look forward to hearing more about it. The appointment he's referring to was that job interview he knew she didn't show up for, and this was factually the world's most formal and awkward voicemail left between a husband and wife in the history of forever. Later that day at 2.45 p.m., Todd's phone pinged in the area Katrina's car was found, then in the area of the condo she'd been living at, and at around 3 p.m., he was in the area where her wallet was found. His phone pinged in the area where her car was found prior to reporting her missing, and it wasn't even located until later that evening. The defense tried to argue that he could have been at any of the stores in those areas of his phone pings, but failed to provide any actual evidence proving this theory. So it's just that. A theory served to the jury to try and create reasonable doubt. No CCTV footage, no receipts, nothing. With all that, the prosecution rested, and it was the defense's turn to try and argue their case, and it was a shit show. 
They claimed that police didn't look at anyone else for this, that they'd had tunnel vision for Todd since the beginning, and he was just a victim of confirmation bias. But one of the detectives confirmed that they'd actually had several persons of interest along the way who were all crossed off the list one by one, except for Todd. The defense tried to discredit one of the investigators by pointing out that he had said the wrong street name at one point. He had said Norman Avenue instead of Normandy Avenue, and there's now a new definition for the term grasping at straws. They argued that there was no reason to seize Todd's muddy boots because they didn't test positive for any blood. However, they were soaking wet the day Katrina was reported missing, which they chalk up to being from the rain the day before. Literally, no one cares about these fucking boots except for Todd, and he really gives a whole shit about them. I mean, they tried to get them excluded from evidence, and now they're talking about how insignificant they are. Apparently, there were fibers found on the bloody paper towels, which were in fact paper towels with Katrina's blood on them. But Todd's defense attorney had an expert testify that the fibers found on the paper towels didn't match the carpet sample taken from Todd's home. So, okay, that's neat and doesn't really change anything. In a last-ditch effort, they tried to point the finger at Guy, talking about his past with his own wife and his domestic assault charges. They showed his mugshot to the jury and tried to question the validity of his alibi. But cross-examination is a bitch, and CCTV footage of Guy at work exactly where he said he was all night the night Katrina was murdered shit all over this theory. On January 25th, 2017, closing arguments were heard and the jury was sent out to deliberate. And while this trial took forever to happen, the jury came back with a verdict within five hours. Todd Smith was found guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated battery, aggravated domestic battery, and concealment of a homicide. Additionally, they did find the murder to be brutal and heinous, which means Todd could face that life sentence, and we can only hope. Four months after being found guilty, Todd is finally sentenced to 59 years in prison. Considering his age, this is essentially a life sentence, even though legally it's not, and his sentence cannot be reduced with good behavior. WIFR reported that the judge told him that his participation in the searches for Katrina was a slap in the face to everyone looking for her. Todd made a statement at his sentencing, and that, too, was a slap in the face. He told the court and everyone there that he was innocent and that he was going to get a new trial. He added that he wanted everyone to know that even though they got this wrong, he harbors no ill will towards anyone. This guy beat his wife to death threw her into a river, sent her a sweet dreams text, reported her missing, and then helped search for her. And he just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he didn't hold any ill will towards them. How anyone, let alone her family and friends, had enough self-control not to lose their shit when he said this is a testament to their strength. Todd did try to get a new trial and failed miserably, and no one was shocked. All Katrina wanted in life was to be happy, and all Todd wanted was to control every move she made. And when he couldn't, he made sure that at the very least, he knew what moves they were. He tracked her movements for weeks before ultimately killing her, and the very tool he used tracked him in the commission of it. 
Katrina's family was relieved that there was justice and went straight to her grave to tell her the good news. But one of the things that they were most looking forward to was the fact that people could now focus on the life that Katrina lived instead of the way she died. Katrina's family was relieved that there was finally justice and went straight to her grave to tell her the good news. But one of the things they were most looking forward to was the fact that now people can focus on the life that she lived instead of the way she died. For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Katrina's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. And join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the twists and turns that are this case. Special thank you to Lindsay Ann for her help in researching this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.